Hi, fantasy readers. This is Corinne Norton, your fellow book binger, and you are listening to the Finding Fantasy Reads podcast, where you can test out a new fantasy story every single week to find your next favorite author. Today's story is one that newsletter subscribers have already heard. For the past few months, I've been sending it out as a thank you when people sign up for the newsletter. But today, I'm bringing it out for everyone for a very special reason. This morning, about the same time that this episode went live, I launched a Kickstarter campaign for my debut epic fantasy novel, Blood of the Stars. The book is full of found family, reluctant royalty, blood magic, and descendants of stars on the brink of war. If you're not familiar with Kickstarter, it's a crowdfunding platform that authors can use to jumpstart the release of their book. It's a bit like a pre-order campaign in the sense that everyone who backs the project now will get their book and pre-order goodies well before the official release of the book, which isn't until March of 2024. I'll have more about the Kickstarter at the end, as well as links in the show notes. The reason I even bring it up is because today you get to hear my brother, Peter Franson, host of Christian Geek Central, read the prequel short story to the series. You'll meet Garen and Aliana, who are friends who were separated as children, and you'll find out why Garen is so desperate to find Aliana in Blood of the Stars. And if you're a newsletter subscriber who's already heard this story, never fear, there's a new bonus blooper episode that I sent out for subscribers. So go check your email. For the rest of you, please enjoy The Light That Takes by Corinne Norton. Chapter 1 Garen leaned into the seawater spray, relishing the salty scent. He belonged out here on the water more than the palace he'd left behind in LNS. Larkos chuckled from his place at Starspeed's wheel, the laugh lines around his eyes blending in with the wrinkles from weather and old age. It's not very captain-like to soak up sea spittle like a cabin boy. Every sailor is still a cabin boy at heart. Garin forced himself away from the ship's edge to stand at his first mate's side. The privileged life of a prince meant he'd already spent six of his twenty-two years as captain of his own ship, but he still felt twelve around most of the older men who served as his crew. Besides, seawater tastes of freedom. I've been cooped up in Enla's endless meetings for the past moon even though she's the one inheriting the throne. Larkos grunted but said nothing, which meant he had a lot more to add. He always did when it came to Garen's sister and the royal family's rule. Garen scanned the crew as if he wasn't already certain the men were hard at work repairing nets, swabbing the deck, and organizing the food stores they'd brought on board. Most of them were regulars and the rest were handpicked by Larkos. They could sail this ship without Garen, which was a good thing today because today hopeful distraction made it impossible for him to plot out voyages or schedule shifts. For the first time in years, he had reason to believe he was going to find Daisy, that this trip would be the last time he set out searching for his missing childhood friend. It wouldn't be long before they reached the Western Horn, the most dangerous part of their path from the wetlands of LNS to the arid plains of Andel. The only viable path around the horn required a sharp turn, directing star speed between a treacherous coral reef and a shimmering magical barrier. For a thousand years, the glass-like wall had divided the waters surrounding the continent where LNS stood from the waters surrounding the human's continent. 
Everyone on Garen's side of the barrier had the distinct advantage of being half-lights, descendants of the stars. Not the static stars in the distant heavens, but the dancing ones who shot through the night sky, both in celebration and mourning with the people. Even the half-lights who hadn't developed magic in their star blood were better off than the humans, who'd likely died out if the lack of sightings across the water was any indication. Still, the barrier remained, a permanent obstacle at the western horn that threatened to crumple bows and sink ships. Why'd we rush out in the middle of the day, anyway? Larkos's gruff question broke into Garen's thoughts. We'll be hard-pressed to round the horn before the sun sleep. Garen leaned against the gunwale, crossing one boot over the other. Enla and I decided we needed those vases from Andel to hold the... the calla lilies? He stumbled over the name, knowing it wasn't right. Chrysanthemums. Garen eyed his first mate in surprise. Yes, those. Something about them having the same purple hue as Mother's bonding gown. Apparently it makes them ideal centerpieces for their fiftieth bonding anniversary. There were white ones, too, the old sailor cut in, a faraway look in his eyes. A sign of loyalty and honesty. Boded well for the kingdom. They threw them out to the crowds. I caught one and brought it home for my ma. Garin started as Larkos's memory stretched toward him like a vine offering its buds. Tuning into memories had become second nature with Garin's training as a noetic progeny. Like all progenies, he was a half-light chosen to harness the sun's power and reflect its glory. His skills centered in the mind rather than the body or soul, and they'd grown in the last two years. He no longer needed to touch someone to receive their memory. Still, Larkos had always held his memories close, and now he was practically handing one over to Garin. The memory transported him back to the crowded palace gates, the view from Larkos's childhood height blocked by the adult's broad shoulders and thick waists. He squeezed himself between sweaty villagers and smelly horses until a gap in the throng revealed the king's carriage holding Garin's father, the king, who was only a toddler at the time. At his side, a noblewoman, Garin's long-dead grandmother, held the future queen, the voluminous purple folds of a gown swallowing up the infant's tiny frame. In the memory, the king grabbed handfuls of white flowers before tossing them out to the people. One drifted to the side, sailing straight into Larkos's childhood hand, as if guided by the sun itself. Larkos cradled the flower in his hand all the way to his dilapidated cottage, where his mother nursed an infant brother and kept three other young ones occupied with darning socks at her knee. Her eyes lit up at the sight of the flower, then closed as she inhaled its scent. She pulled Larkos close as if he'd planted and plucked the flower just for her. Garin's vision blurred, and he took a step back, reacclimating himself to Starspeed's deck. No wonder you know so much about the flowers, he murmured. Larkos cleared his throat, hunching his shoulders and shifting his face out of Garin's view. I also happen to know that two dozen purple vases were delivered from Andel just last week. Came in on a shipment I helped inventory. Garin grinned, not just because Larkos had redirected the conversation, but also because of how easily Garin had gotten Enla to cave to his request. 
That's why I suggested each table have two vases, symbolic of mother and father's bond. During the ceremony, the two flower arrangements will be combined into one. Enla had eaten up the sentiment. Larko snorted. That still doesn't explain why we left in the middle of the day. Enla panicked, so I offered to leave early. Don't suppose you'll tell me what we're really going for. I've always liked surprises. Garen didn't care what he had to claim to sail to Andel for, as long as he got to go. His sources spoke of a young, green-eyed goddess who whispered water into submission. He couldn't imagine Daisy grown up, but she had loved the water, and she'd already had magic as a child. It was the best lead he'd had in years. It'd be faster to sail straight south, Larko said. Yes, well, Enla also wants those orange shells near Selenoft. As the town's name left his lips, glimpses of its tower and sprawling village passed through his mind. His jaw tightened. It was all in ruins now. Ever since he'd been there as a child. Ever since he'd lost Daisy. His fingers settled into the well-worn grooves of his dagger's hilt, his thumb resting as it always did on the flower engraved in the pommel, a reminder of his broken promise. During his years sailing, he'd scoured every major port, hoping to find any hint that might lead him back to her. He didn't expect to discover anything new, but that didn't mean he'd stop looking. Memories of her pudgy arms and fine baby hair threatened to surface, but out of necessary habit he pressed them down. Searching for her was one thing, but calling up specific memories was dangerous. No one on Starspeed was a threat, but it was too easy for his memories to be accessed and used by the wrong people. Better to always keep them hidden away. Larkos grunted. Sometimes I swear she just wants to get rid of you. The feeling is mutual. Even if Garen learned nothing new, this voyage earned him more than a month away from his parents, the palace, court intrigue, and even Enla as much as he loved his sister. His smile fell as he thought of the artificial perfection he'd eventually returned to, and he raked a hand through his short hair, tangled by the wind. He should have sheared it like his first mate, whose scalp tattoos gleamed in the sun's setting glow. You're restless, Larkos said. Garen stilled his tapping foot, not ready for Larkos's prying questions. The old man mostly asked to report back to his wife, who took it upon herself to look after Garen. Rounding the western horn, the barrelman called down from the crow's nest, saving Garen from having to explain his constant agitation. Larkos shouted confirmation to the crew, his suspicious gaze still resting on Garen. The few men repairing nets and organizing food stores all took to their stations. The sun was slipping beneath the waves, and the sailors lit several lanterns in preparation for the coming darkness. An anticipatory stillness settled over the crew, everyone's eyes on the space where the shimmering barrier rose from the water. Once they passed the deadly coral reef framing the wetlands, they could turn the ship north and then east, following the line of the northern coast until they reached the Mindran Mountains. The maneuver required precision and experience. Turning too soon would run them aground in the coral. Turning too late would send them careening into the barrier. Or so Garen had always been told. 
The transparent glimmer above the waves was the only indication that they couldn't keep sailing west to the shores of the human's land in the distance, but it was more than enough to send the crew scrambling. Rumors of churning water pulling entire ships under instilled healthy fear in the men. Still, Garin's fingers itched to hold the wheel to test the waters for himself. I'd like to take her out, Garin said, pushing off the gunwale. Larkos hesitated but stepped aside, making room for Garin. There's nothing you need to prove to these men. The words were soft and lacked his usual bite, but they still stung. I never said I did. You didn't have to say it. Garin tightened his grip on the wheel. Irritated, Larkos spoke a truth Garin didn't want to hear. But it was hard to stay angry when Larkos often treated him more like a son than the king ever had. The sailors' voices dimmed to a hush as they approached the barrier. Sails came down and muscles grew taut as they all waited for commands. They'd reached the horn without a moment to spare. As soon as the sun slept, the waters would turn black, hiding the path to safety. Garin kept his gaze on the dark blue of the water, watching where it shifted to a pale aqua with the shallow reef. He steered around it, keeping a safe distance. Then movement danced from the corner of Garin's eye. A glance up revealed another ship barreling toward them, so close it seemed to have flickered into existence. "'Ship ahead!' the barrelman's shout was followed by panicked yells from the crew. Rounding the horn was hard enough without another ship on the same path. Garin stilled as he took in its location and trajectory. Even Larkos gasped. The other ship wasn't on this side of the barrier. It was on the human's side. Chapter 2 the crew's yells blended into an unintelligible roar that Garin ignored. The ships sailed straight at each other, but just like Starspeed, the other ship would have to turn or risk colliding with the barrier. If both ships bore north, they'd come close enough to touch. Not that reaching through the barrier was a possibility, or so everyone said. He'd heard dozens of legends of people dying in their attempts— but what if they were children's fairy tales meant to ward them away from even trying? Garin froze. His gaze stuck on the ship barreling toward them. But it wasn't the fear of crashing into the reef or the barrier or the other ship that made his every hair stand on end. A prickling rush swept through him at the evidence of the impossible made real. Humans existed. People lived on the other side of the barrier. Hard right, Larkos hissed. Instead of moving the wheel, Garin yanked on the old sailor's arm and shoved him into position at the helm. Garin rushed toward the stern, pushing past sailors and clambering over the deck. Larkos's sharp turn north shifted the boat's balance, making Garin slide. He grabbed Starspeed's port side for purchase, and the edge of the rail dug into his hand hard enough to bruise. As the ship's bow turned, the stern overcompensated, slamming wood into Garin's ribs, but also angling him closer to the barrier. The coppery taste of fear and possibility flooded his tongue, and time slowed as his brain fought to catch up with his eyes. He thought he'd searched every port for Daisy, and he had, on Vendaris. But beyond the barrier to the west, in Lorvandas, there could be hundreds more ports to search— and beyond the other barriers in the other lands there could be thousands more. 
If Daisy had crossed the barriers, it could explain why he'd never been able to find her. He grabbed a mooring rope and knotted it to the decking ring before looping the other end around his waist, ignoring the protests of the men closest to him. The ship across the barrier had also made a hard right, driving south instead of east, with the barrier and mere feet separating them. They wouldn't sail alongside each other for long. Now that Garin was near enough to see, the shimmering wall was like the rainbow of a prism. He leaped onto the stern, then leaned out over the water, letting his fingertips brush the barrier. It was like fire tempered by ice, the alternating hot and cold making Garin nauseous. The sensation grew stronger the farther he reached, until he was too likely to black out before making it through. He drew his hand back in disappointment, then focused on the other ship, so close he could make out its captain and crew. A sailor stood at the bow, gaze on Garin, mouth agape. He was Garin's opposite in many ways, short and round where Garin was tall and lean, russet hair to his waist while Garin's brown locks were sheared within a finger's length of his scalp. The man's rough, drab clothing spoke of function more than fashion, while Garin's fancy buttons dug into his throat as he caught his breath. But those were signs of different classes, not race or blood. In every other way, from the outside, the mysterious humans were indistinguishable from the half-lights. Despite the human's slack jaw, he raised a limp hand as if in greeting. Garin laughed, returning the wave. The words the other captain shouted to his crew were muted by the barrier, and as quickly as the ship had come, it disappeared from view as the sun slipped beneath the sea. Humans living across the barrier. Garin's shock made him laugh harder. He remained angled out over the water, letting the cool water's salty spray bring his pounding heart back to its steady beat. He pulled himself upright with the rope, then hopped back down on the deck before untying his harness and returning the rope to its place. He avoided the crew's eyes, not wanting to see their shocked faces over the risk he'd taken. The longer they remained silent, the more his guilt increased. He'd not only risked himself, he'd put them in danger too. Larkos, however, did not remain silent. "'Sun's fire! What were you thinking?' he bellowed. I wasn't thinking, Garin admitted. I'm sorry, but the humans, they still exist. He couldn't keep the awe from his voice as he stepped between Larkos and the wheel, pulling the handles from the older man's grasp. Larkos turned and swore, slamming a fist on the gunwale. You could have died, and I would have been responsible. This whole crew would have been held responsible to the king and queen. Just so you could get a good look at a human? The twinge of remorse tickled in Garin's chest once more, and this time he took in the way his crew's face had paled to a sickly gray. Still, he couldn't ignore the way this new knowledge burned within him. Have you ever seen one before? Larkos grumbled under his breath. Didn't think so. A smile tugged at Garin's lips. Hope dared to grow, fighting against the constant failure of his search for Daisy. We've all heard the theories— but the humans didn't die across the barrier without the aid of our magic. The other races might not have either. That doesn't change anything. Larkos crossed his arms, his face in shadows now that the sun had gone to sleep. There's still a barrier dividing us. Garin bit back his answer. 
It changed everything for him. I know that look, Larkos growled. No one can get across the barriers. Garen's grin widened, despite the way his hand still tingled from the barrier's sting. Just because he couldn't pass through it didn't mean there wasn't another way. Is that a challenge to prove you wrong? Of course not. Besides, what about the star bridges? Larkos groaned. You're insufferable. They're myths, along with everything else the priests and priestesses tell us. Skepticism bled into his tone, pushing Garen to defend his faith. The barriers aren't myths, Garen eyed the wall that still glinted in the light of the moon and lanterns to prove its existence. What makes you think the star bridges are? If they were real, they would have been used long ago. Your family would have conquered each land one by one and turned them into more provinces to tax and control. Larkos pressed his lips together, his eye twitching as he cut off the rest of his tirade. He could be hanged for his opinions, but sometimes Garen found himself agreeing with the cantankerous man's politics. Often enough, at least, that he wouldn't turn the old man in for his treasonous words. Fair point, Garen said, even as his heart wanted the star bridges to exist. By suppressing his memories of Daisy, He'd also suppressed the religious training he'd received during his dedication year. Now those memories tugged at him like an itch demanding to be scratched. Lessons of the stars dividing the lands, the sun taking pity on the people, bridges of light being created to cross the barriers. Larkos turned, yelling at a few sailors who still gawked at the stern of the ship, as if the mystery ship might reappear. Even this sighting would become legend. It would turn into a ghost story of its own before they reached Andel's harbor. Besides, Larkos huffed, the myths also say the star bridges hold the power of the stars. When used, their light explodes across the water. Garen's heart pounded, and his hands trembled against the wheel. He'd forgotten that bit from his religious training. A bright light flashed in his mind, a memory he fought to keep buried. Exploding light? It's not exactly something we could miss, the old man laughed, nudging Garen with his elbow. It would be seen for miles, blinding men with the glory of the sun. The last few words came out dripping with sarcasm. Garen's head buzzed as he reached for the pommel of his dagger. He rubbed the daisy engraving, his mind's training battling with his heart's desire to search through his memory for understanding. Take the wheel, Garen murmured. He stumbled as he left the quarter-deck and squeezed between men to sequester himself in his quarters. He shut the door behind him, passing between his small bed and desk to drop into his chair. Beneath Garen's tunic, his starlock hummed with warmth. Anyone with starblood had the potential for magic, but only progenies received starlocks, allowing them to harness the star's power. The small metal object, unique to each progeny, encompassed a lock of a star's hair, which enhanced and refueled their magic, magic that demanded to be used. Garin gripped his starlock and leaned forward, forehead pressed into the wood of his desk. Legends of star bridges melded with the memories Garin kept shoving down, pushing forward in his mind even as he tried suppressing them once more. The starlock grew hot with purpose. It wanted him to connect the two. His surroundings melted away as the memories took over his mind, replacing even the sway of the ship. Chapter 3 
The sun-gazer loomed over Garin's eight-year-old frame, its cylindrical stone surface exactly like his place of worship back in LNS. He leaned back, squinting to take in its stained-glassed windows depicting the stars bowing before the sun. He spun atop the sun-gazer's hill to see both the valley spread out behind it and the sea unfurling in front of it, relishing the salty breeze and sharp drops on either side. Everyone in Selenoft had to climb this hill every time they wanted to worship, but he'd only had to walk through the palace halls to reach Elenes's primary sun-gazer. Garin's servant stepped forward to knock on the tower's nearest door, his white hair ruffling in the wind. Breck had never served Garin before, but the king and queen insisted the old man accompany him for his dedication year. No other servants were allowed because Garin's parents wanted his status as royalty to remain a secret. The door opened, and a priestess stepped out. The woman's quick steps and soft smile made her seem younger than Garin's mother. A leather cord sat on the priestess's neck, its charm tucked beneath her tunic. It was likely a starlock, which meant she had magic, like his parents, like he would one day. She was followed by a pear-shaped maidservant with sharp eyes who stared both him and Breck down. Garin tightened his grip on his small pack as both women took in their appearances. Would the slightly worn clothing and shoes be enough to make them think distant nobleman's son instead of prince? Iris, go fetch Eliana from her nap. The priestess bent forward until she was eye-level with Garin, while her maidservant rushed to do her bidding. I'm Emerus. It's lovely to meet you, Henry. He started when she addressed him with the fake name. You're going to become great friends with my daughter, she added. She's only three, but I suspect she'll win you over. Garin grimaced, and the priestess laughed. The skin around her eyes crinkled with pleasure, and dimples formed in her cheeks. It made her seem younger, like Enla. Mother would never smile like that, not with people watching. Iris returned, a child with must hair and rosy cheeks blinking drowsily in her arms. When the girl's gaze landed on Garin, she popped her thumb in her mouth and curled into the maidservant's neck. "'Come now, don't be shy!' Emerus took the child from her maidservant's arms and kneeled by Garin. "'Say hello!' The girl, who must have been Eliana, continued sucking her thumb, studying Garin. His dedication year would be a long one if she was his only companion. This time was meant to be filled with learning the basics of the faith from a priest or priestess, but the fun part was supposed to be meeting other children. It was bad enough that he'd have to sit around all day reading scripture and doing the priestess's bidding. It looked like his free time wouldn't be much fun either. She has a bond, Garin pointed out, tapping the black mark on Eliana's palm. She leaned away, deeper into her mother's hold. A crease formed between her eyes, but she still sucked her thumb. I thought only royalty were bonded as babies, Garin said. Bonding happened young for royalty, long before the official marriage as adults. He'd had his own bonding ceremony five years earlier. The priestess raised her eyebrows, then flipped over Garin's hand, exposing his own mark. Is that so? Then how do you explain this? He pulled his hand away and looked at his toes. Master Henry was bonded young to pay off debts, Breck said. He knows he's not supposed to talk about that embarrassing family history. Garin peeked up into the servant's unforgiving gaze. Back home, he could demand the man be let go for his insolence. But out here, 
Mother wanted the old man around to protect Garin. And father, well, father would take Garin's hide if he knew Garin had already given himself away on day one. It had been their one rule above all else. No one could know who he was. We all have secrets, Henry, Emerus whispered. I won't tell yours if you don't tell ours. Her solemn green eyes held his gaze with the promise. She no longer seemed young. Even so, she treated him like an adult, her equal. He stood straighter, pulling his shoulders back. I can keep secrets to my grave, your holiness. She grinned. Well then, I'm impressed, because that should be a very long time. And call me Emerus. I'm no more holy than you. Aeliana finally pulled out her sodden thumb. Go swim? Her eyes were the same shade as her mother's, deep and glittering like the seawater he'd longingly passed. You go swim? She slid off the priestess's lap and patted Garin's chest. Iris snorted. Better him than me. The priestess stood. Iris can escort you both to the creek. You can take Eliana swimming until my husband, Rildon, returns. It's safer than the sea's pull. Besides, we won't have many more opportunities to swim. The weather is changing quickly. Garin's hopes rose a bit. The creek could be fun, even if he had to bring the baby. Tomorrow we'll start your lessons. Garin nodded, and Eliana raised chubby arms. He hesitated, not having much experience with younger children. The girl stretched her arms insistently, so he lifted her up by her armpits. She instinctively wrapped her legs around his waist, and her arms held his neck with a death grip, her hair and head blocking half his view. Hurry! Hurry! she shouted, bouncing against him and throwing him off balance. Iris and Breck followed them out the door, then led the way to the creek. To Garen's surprise, Eliana was decent company, showing him where the frogs hid along with a patch of berries that hadn't been picked over by the animals. She chattered incessantly, which could eventually grow annoying, but for the moment it was a bit like having Enla with him again. When they returned, a man who must have been Rildon came and swept Eliana up on his shoulders before kissing Emerus right on the lips. Garen made a face, but Eliana smushed her parents' heads closer together as if it was an everyday occurrence. He had a lot to get used to. The days melded together as seasons came and went. As a noetic who could give her own memories to others, Emerus convinced Garen it wasn't cheating for her to give him memories of learning scripture. As long as he could recall someone reading it, he was still learning the faith. It left him more time to play with Eliana, who quickly grew on him despite being so chatty. Living in Selenoft was the happiest Garen could remember being, which had filled him with guilt. What would Enla say if she knew? It was the middle of winter before the secrets Emerus spoke of began to surface. Garen and Eliana had bundled up in extra layers to go out in the field just north of the Sungazer. Breck watched from the eaves of the Sungazers, eager to stay out of the wind, but Garen and Eliana pulled out the star they'd sewn with scraps and tied to a string, letting the wind catch it and fly it to the heavens. Just like real stars! Eliana's giggles were contagious, and soon Garen found himself looking down at the little girl instead of up at the star flying in the wind. He grinned back until his gaze caught on the blossoms sprouting at her feet. Despite the half-frozen earth beneath them, green stems unfurled around them. White petals unfolded to reveal yellow centers before catching in the wind to start their own dance. 
What started as three grew to a dozen, multiplying even faster as Eliana jumped up and down, pointing at the toy in the sky. Garin stepped back, his mouth hanging open, as the daisies spread through the field, the wave of their existence in time with Eliana's laughter. He dropped to his knees, laughing along with her as he gathered a handful of flowers in his hands. Eliana finally looked his way, gasping as she took in the bouquet he'd collected. Without warning, she dropped the string, which fluttered beyond their grasp in a heartbeat. She knocked the daisies from his hand, stomping on the rest, ripping them up and throwing them away. He grabbed her shoulders, steering her back until she stood in front of him. It's all right. It's just daisies. Shh! She placed her fingers over her lips, eyes wide with panic. No, no, no! Shh! Understanding dawned. It wasn't just daisies. It was magic. Her magic. Children weren't supposed to have magic, not until they were older, until the sun chose them and the stars delivered a starlock. This was one of their secrets, and it was a secret that put her in danger. What would people do if they knew? Make her start training early? Take her from her family? Her parents would. They would prepare her to be one of their progenies, no longer free, but bound to their every whim. I won't tell, he whispered. Ever. Immediately, Eliana's shoulders relaxed. He reached down and pulled the smashed daisies from her grip, smoothing out what he could. She tensed next to him, so he spoke in a soothing tone while he worked. My sister taught me how to make these, said I should learn in case I wanted to make them for my bondmate some day. He made a face, and Eliana giggled. You want thick stems so you can make a slit like this. Then you thread a second daisy through the stem of the first. Eliana bent forward, her head blocking his view, but he could make daisy chains in his sleep. You need about twenty-five to make a crown, maybe twenty for your small head. He wrapped her temple with his knuckles, and she grinned. She watched as he tied off the crown, then beamed as he placed it on her head. "'Necklace!' she demanded, handing him more flowers. The idea should have made him cringe, but somehow he didn't mind. Anything to keep her smiling. No matter how many daisies he chained, more sprouted as Eliana's excitement grew. She danced among the daisies like some sort of fairy princess, showing off her new jewelry. He thought of the possibility of her being torn from her family, of someone using her magic for their own gain. Something scratched at the back of his throat and made it hard to swallow. He bent back down, slicing another daisy's stem. He would keep making her daisy chains, and he would keep her secret. Anything to keep her safe. Chapter 4 a few weeks later, the adults exchanged worried glances and hushed whispers over breakfast, then moved to the sitting area by the garden, which wasn't quite ready for planting, leaving Garin to entertain Eliana in the dirt. Breck stood nearby, but his attention seemed to be on Rildon and Emerus, so Garin did his best to listen in too. It grew easier when Iris joined them. The maidservant was a loud talker, and with three they couldn't lean in as easily to whisper. Ears, Eliana announced, passing over more of the daisies she'd grown. Garin complied, chaining a few together to make matching earrings. While she waited, Eliana balanced several between her fingers, holding them out and wiggling her fingers as if she wore fancy rings. 
Garen stepped closer to Breck as though looking for the perfect daisy. Instead, he listened in on the adult's conversation. She promised she wouldn't come back, Rildon said. Emerus made a noise in the back of her throat. You think we can hold her to her promises? You've forgotten that she... I haven't forgotten, Rildon's tone turned sharp, and Emerus fell silent. Sorry, I just thought we'd have more time. I could take the child and hide her, Iris said. Garen tensed, glancing back at Aeliana. She squealed over the earrings, holding them up to her ears and batting her eyes at Garen. He smiled at her antics, but his insides squirmed. Is it selfish for me to say no? The priestess sounded near tears, which scared Garen more than anything else they'd said. It's never selfish for a mother to want her daughter, Rildan said. We'll give it more time. When we can't wait any more, I'll hide with her. Their voices drifted down to murmurs, and Garen took the daisies he'd gathered back to Aeliana. He sat next to her as she gathered up the daisies, attempting to match his skill with her chubby fingers. She grew frustrated, so he took them from her hands, making the chain she'd tried so hard to manage. She held it up over her head, studying it in the sun's light. Her eyes shined with the flower's reflection, and suddenly she seemed different, fragile and precious. He'd grown to love her like he loved Enla, and the idea that she might be in danger haunted him. She sat in his lap and put the chain in his hand. "'Your daisies,' she said. "'You're my daisy,' he squeezed her a little tighter than usual and handed the chain back. She giggled, repeating the nickname until it no longer sounded like a word. She snuggled against him with a soft sigh, holding out the chain once more. "'I love these daisies best.' She popped her free thumb in her mouth. She smelled of the sea and tasted of salt when he pressed a kiss on the top of her head. "'I love this daisy best,' he whispered against her hair. Garen kept worrying all through spring, rarely leaving Daisy's side. He became her shadow even more so than Breck had been his. She sat at his feet while he reviewed or gained Emerus's memories, and she trailed him for whatever errands the priestess sent him on. They were weeding together in the new garden when Emerus came running from the sun-gazer, her eyes wild with panic. Garen stood, scanning the courtyard for Breck, but for once the servant was nowhere in sight. Quick! Emerus shoved them both toward the woods, and Daisy nearly toppled over. Take Eliana to the creek. Hide with her in the brush. What's going on? Garen asked, picking up Daisy. Please, just go! Emerus glanced back at the sun-gazer. Don't come back unless Rildon finds you. The words he'd overheard that night came back to him. This was it. The woman they feared had come. I thought Rildon was going to take her. Hide with her, Garen said. Emerus started. Perceptive boy, she muttered. Questions danced in her gaze, but she shook her head. He needs to get something first, something that will help him protect her, which is why I need your help. Without waiting for an answer, Emerus grasped his left arm and Daisy's right. Heat flooded through Garen, energy from Emerus's starlock being transferred like fire from one tree branch to another. He felt like he could run to the creek and back without getting a stitch in his side, even while holding Daisy. He hoisted the toddler up higher on his hip. Emrys, on the other hand, nearly fell to her side, her face pale. 
"'Go,' she whispered. "'May the sun's light always shine upon you.' Garin hesitated. It sounded too final. "'And may the star's light always guide you.' He took off down the well-worn path, Daisy bouncing so hard she giggled. Her little laugh and the thought of anything or anyone taking it away sent sharp pains shooting through Garin's chest. Sweat poured down his face, stinging his eyes and leaving salt on his lips. "'Go swim?' Daisy squirmed, wanting to be let down. "'No, not yet. Tomorrow. We'll go tomorrow.' The confusion on her face blurred before him, and he gave an angry swipe at his tears. "'We're going to play hide-and-seek instead. We'll hide in the bushes and wait for your father to find us.' Her eyes lit up, and his heart broke all over again. "'Who could want to hurt her?' They scrambled under the bushes, Daisy whining over the thorns and Garin desperately trying to cover their tracks behind him. Emerus was a noetic. Did the lady after Daisy have magic too? Would she know where they were no matter how well they hid? As the sun passed below the horizon, Daisy started to shiver. Garin told jokes until she grew Daisy's, chained them together to distract her, covering himself with the silly jewelry she'd grown to love. The longer they waited, the more Garin began to wonder if it was safe to come out. Daisy asked a dozen times for the hide-and-seek game to be over, but each time Garin found a way to distract her. She counted and recounted flowers, hiding them in various pockets of his shirt and trousers, then in her skirt pockets. Eventually, she settled the last of the chains on her own wrists and neck. What if the lady hunting Daisy had hurt Rildon and he couldn't come? What if she'd hurt all the adults, and it was up to Garin to get Daisy to safety? Then it would be better for him to take her home. His parents would help her. Wouldn't they? He squeezed his eyes shut and opened his mouth, ready to tell Daisy they could come out, when the sound of boots on dirt met his ears. The sound was immediately drowned out by the rush of blood in his head, panic accelerating his heart. "'Is that Papa?' Daisy tensed, but not with fear. Her lips split into a smile even as her teeth chattered. "'He's gonna find us!' she giggled, then covered her mouth with a hand. But it wasn't Rildon who came into view. Instead, the moon lit up two figures, a tall, lanky man and a heavy-set woman who scowled as they scanned the brush. Chapter 5 Garin tensed, pulling Daisy tighter against him. As the man and woman came closer, a third set of steps sounded, and Rildon's head peeked over the edge of the bank. He slid down the sand as if he chased the strangers, but his face twisted with concern, and he glanced behind him, like he was running from someone else. "'Papa!' Daisy screamed. "'No!' Garin hissed, pulling on her clothes, but it was too late." She barreled out of the brush and waded through the freezing creek, wrapping her arms around her father's legs. In the darkness, Garin couldn't see Rildon's expression, but the man's and woman's expressions turned smug. Blood dripped from their hands, identifying them as wielders of blood magic. Garin shuddered, wondering which half-light they'd bled. He shrank back under the brush, hating himself for being a coward. He should go after Daisy and protect her, but what could he do at this point besides get caught along with her? Two more figures reached the bank, one he recognized as Emerus, but the other was cloaked and hooded. "'You and I have a gift, Emerus,' the hooded stranger said, the voice low but still feminine. 
Even though she addressed the priestess, she walked up to Rildon, who now held Daisy, and ran a finger down the girl's face. Daisy turned away, burying her face in Rildon's neck. He glared at the stranger, but said nothing. "'It's not a gift, it's a curse,' Emerus argued. Garin had never seen the priestess look so tired or weak. It was then he realized the added strength he'd felt before was gone, all used up by his time with Daisy under the brush. Would they have frozen to death if Emerus hadn't shared her Starlock's energy to protect them? Was Emerus going to die now because she helped Garin and Daisy live? His entire body shook, and he feared the plants would shake with him, revealing his hiding spot. What would the stranger do to a spy hovering in their midst? The adults kept talking, but Garin had trouble focusing as his fingers and toes grew numb. What were they going to do to Daisy? Emerus and the other woman grew louder, their discussion more heated, but a wind carried their voices downstream. Garin kept his gaze on Daisy, which was why he noticed Rildon slowly reaching into his cloak pocket. Garin grew more alert, watching as the man pulled out a golden arrow. His hopes sagged. What use was an arrow without a bow, especially one so tiny? The first two strangers grabbed Rildon's arms, nearly pulling Daisy from his grasp. She woke with a cry, then hung on around his neck, her legs scrambling for purchase to wrap around his waist. "'Papa!' she cried. The flowers were crushed along her arms, the chains breaking and drifting to the ground as she sacrificed her jewelry for a better grip on her father. Her cry turned to sobs. Rildon twisted, trying to get out of the stranger's grasps. When his back faced Garin, Daisy's red eyes and blotchy cheeks peeked over his shoulder. She reached out a pudgy hand toward Garin's hiding spot. He knew he should help her, but what could he do?' Rildon twisted once more, and a look passed between him and Emerus, one that would haunt Garin for years, a mixture of torment and love, with depth he'd never seen or understood between two people in a family. Emerus gave a swift nod just as Rildon's captors stole his arrow and shoved a knife in his side. Garin's cry was lost beneath Rildon's, and a blinding light burst from the surrounding forest, forcing Garin to shield his eyes against some type of magic he'd never seen before. Exploding light, like the glory of the sun. Screams of rage erupted in his ears, then moans of pain. He rubbed at his eyes, trying to make them adjust, trying to see what had caused the light and who was being hurt. Darkness replaced the white imprinted on his eyes, then slowly faded to a gray with muted colors. Daisy and her father were gone, along with the man and woman who'd used blood magic. Were they dead? Had the blood magic somehow made them disappear? He shivered, then focused on Emerus. She and the cloaked woman glared at one another, chests heaving. The stranger struck Emerus on the cheek, and the priestess fell to the ground, inches from where Garin hid. A welt already bruised on her skin. The stranger's hood fell back, and she held her same cheek, making Garin wonder if Emerus had gotten the first hit in before he could see. "'Go,' Emerus murmured, straining to focus on Garin's face. "'Forget all you've seen. Never speak of it.' "'What are you mumbling about?' the stranger headed toward Emerus. If you love her, never speak of her again. Tears pooled in Emerus's eyes before she was yanked out of view. 
Garin's breath rattled, sure to give him away, but long moments passed as the sound of the two women's steps faded. When he realized he was finally alone, he let the tears fall, heedless of how loud he cried. The salty mess on his face only made him miss the little girl more. He should have held her tighter, kept her quiet. What would the strangers with blood magic do to her? Rildon wasn't a progeny chosen by the sun. He had no power to protect her. He might already be dead. He wasn't sure how long he sat there crying. Eventually, branches shifted in a nearby tree, and Iris stepped out, her face stony in the moonlight. Garin's tears came to a shuddering halt. He rolled out from under the brush. Where did they take her? Iris started, then bent close to him, her fingers digging into his upper arms. They took Eliana? He nodded, running a sleeve past his nose, which couldn't seem to stop leaking. A lone flower slipped out of his sleeve from where Daisy had hidden it during her games and fluttered to the ground. He picked it up off the forest floor, pinching it between his thumb and forefinger. I didn't protect her, he whispered. Only the sun and stars can now, Iris closed her eyes. May the sun and stars protect us all. Emerus, she told me to go, to never speak of what I've seen. He waited for Iris to comfort him, to offer help. Then you should go. He hesitated, turning west. Somewhere in the distance lay his palace, which no longer felt like home. The woods dividing there and here were as dark as the mysterious magic had been light. What about Breck? He's gone, her lips turned down. Garin took a step back. Did she mean he was dead? There's no time. Others will come to make sure there weren't witnesses. She wrapped her cloak tighter around her and backed away. You have to go now. We both do. Run! This time, Garin didn't hesitate. He turned and ran. Chapter 6 Garin came up from the memories like he'd been underwater, gasping for air before choking on tears. He hadn't thought they could still be so vivid after all these years. After pushing them down and forgetting them, willing them away for Daisy's safety even as he searched every town for those green eyes. That night, he'd run through the forest, hoping he was headed home. He'd traveled north and west for days on little food and water until he'd recognized the mountains of his hometown. His father had been angry when he returned early, then slightly mollified when he discovered Garin had survived on his own all that time even congratulated him on becoming a young man and proving his title held more than just starblood. For once, his father's approval had meant nothing to Garin. He grew up, fearing he'd become a noetic progeny, that his power wouldn't let him forget the memories, and that he'd give them away, that he'd expose Daisy without meaning to, so he'd hidden the memory deep, even from his parents and mentors, even from Enla. Now he clung to the memory, letting the details flesh out and line up with the legends of the Star Bridges. Some said they were large structures meant to take someone over or under the barrier. Some said they were small objects that changed a person to allow them through the barrier. Others said they instantaneously transported a person from one land to the other. All said they came with blinding light. Bridges made by the sun could be any or all of those options. A small object, like a golden arrow, could have magically bridged the gap. 
His cabin felt stuffy, heated by his activated starlock and the energy expended to hold such an old memory with so much clarity. He wrenched open the door, sucking in the fresh air. Heads whipped in his direction, curious eyes taking him in. He stalked over to the quarterdeck, where Larkos openly gaped at Garen's disheveled state. "'Sun's fire! What happened to you?' A rush of wind brushed across Garen's lips. He wet them, the taste of salt renewing his sense of freedom and purpose. "'I just—I remembered something. Something important.' The green-eyed goddess in Andel would be a dead end, just like all the others before her. For the first time, Garen felt confident about where Daisy had gone and how she'd gotten there. And now that he knew, he could search for the star bridges. And when he found them, he could search every city across every barrier. Once he found her, he could protect her the way he'd been meant to protect her all those years ago. He just had to find the star bridges. The challenge left him grinning like a boy at summer solstice. "'Are you sure touching that sun-forsaken barrier didn't addle your mind?' Larkos eyed him warily, gripping the wheel as if nervous Garen might want to take it once more. "'Quite the opposite,' Garen ran his fingers along the hilt of his dagger, this time greedily tracing the outline of the daisy, his connection to his childhood friend suddenly stronger even as she felt further away." "'Who's that collector on the East Coast, the one with all the treasures from the last war?' Pakrin? Garin grinned. "'Yes, Pakrin. We're adding in a stop to see him. He would be a good place to start. If he didn't already have the Star Bridges, he would have information on where to find them.' "'Don't tell me you've caught the treasure-hunting fever,' Larkos said. "'Fine, I won't tell you that,' Garin leaned over the boat's edge, letting the seawater spray him once more." Think sea spittle tastes of freedom? Larkos's pestering tone begged a sarcastic reply. Garin opened his mouth to give one, but a wave of longing washed over him. It wasn't the water or the spray that brought it on. Not the seawater, he murmured. The salt. Salt in sweat and tears, and now the air and water he escaped to. Salt in fine baby hair that had suffocated him when pudgy arms had wrapped around his own scrawny childhood neck. He closed his eyes and leaned even farther, letting the salt water touch his lips. Salt was the taste of his freedom, and it would be the taste of Daisy's rescue. I hope you enjoyed listening to The Light That Takes by me, Corinne Norton, narrated by Peter Franson of Christian Geek Central. If you enjoyed the story, please go check out the Kickstarter, because I think you'll love reading Blood of the Stars. It picks up with Garen and Aeliana less than a year after the events of the prequel, and by backing the Kickstarter, you'll get to read their story as early as October, instead of having to wait until March. The Kickstarter runs through September 26th, but the earlier you back, the better deals and more goodies you can get. I'll have a direct link for it in the show notes. If you enjoyed listening to Pater narrate the story, you might also enjoy listening to his podcast, Christian Geek Central, where he discusses movies, video games, and all things enjoyed by self-proclaimed geeks from a Christian worldview. Last but not least, it's a new month with a new giveaway, and for the first time, I have my own book to include along with the other featured authors. So if you want a chance to win, go to findingfantasyreads.com giveaway to enter. Thank you all for listening, and happy reading. 